freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. Today, we are going to culminate with Vivek. Vivek, I'm going to ask you, I should say, Ramaswamy. Yep, Vivek Ramaswamy. So, so happy to have you because you're going to talk about your book and the topic of your book, which has been an obsession of mine, not the book as such, maybe it will be. What's going on with the business community? How have they been turned in this way? I, you know, I'm, I'm an old Republican, you know, for the podcasting world, I'm an old, old Republican. Um, and I remember when there was an association with Republicans and the corporate world with, with some kind of conservative orientation and a commitment to free enterprise. And I've discussed this matter with a lot of people who come onto the show, partly because I used to do a lot of work in trademarks and I used to represent luxury brands. And I got very much into understanding, although not really very doing a very good job of adopting the mindset of the corporate brand world. And what I see happening there now, I mean, we've all gotten used to it, but I'm sure you've got a set piece that you can start off with to, to address the issues that I'm raising. And from there, I'm, I'm sure we'll, I'll have lots of questions. What's going yeah, on? Sure. So maybe I'll tell you a little bit about, I'll give you two words about my background because I think it relates to the book and then I'll tell you how I got to where I am. And I'm glad you are. I mean, I, I, I could have, I could have read it myself off the screen, but I'd rather, you probably have a better way of over modestly explaining where you're coming from, but please do. Yeah. It's, it's not a more or less modest, but, but, you know, in a way that informs my perspectives, I, I haven't, I haven't, you know, had a life that was always lived in elite America. I wasn't born into it but I have lived it for the last 15 years. And the thing I'm writing in the, about in the book is really revealing the experiences that I've had. I was born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio as the kid of immigrants who came here in the late seventies and early eighties. They didn't have a lot of money, but they did have an education and, and wanted to pursue an education. That's why they came here. I went to Harvard for college, studied molecular biology, thought I was gonna be a scientist. Instead, I got into the world of biotech investing at a hedge fund in New York in the fall of 2007, right before the 08 financial crisis, which I will say shaped my views of not only capitalism, but capitalism when it gets intertwined with politics, which is actually one of the core subjects of the book. Where did law school fit into this at Yale? Yeah, the- so law school, so I, so I went to, I was I was working at this hedge fund from 2007 to 2014, investing uh-huh. in biotech. But oh, about okay. three years in, I told my bosses that, you know what, in, in 2010, I had never really fully scratched this itch that I had in, in law and political philosophy. And so I was going to leave and I was going to go to Yale to law school, to which they said, actually, go ahead and keep your job. Please manage a portfolio for us. Do it from wherever you want. Do it from New Haven if you want. That's but that would be our request. So I said, great. <laughs> so, so that worked out. So I kept my job, but I also attended Yale from 2010 to 2013. Then when I came back to my investment firm, 
full time, I actually ended up having a, a lot of spare time on my hands. I did a very brief stint in standard comedy. I sure comedy. felt like spare time if you were managing a portfolio while attending Yale Law School. Almost well, yeah, but then after, would feel so like I didn't have a ton of spare time during those years. But uh, <laughs> but afterwards, after the Yale Law School part dropped out of the picture, I had a ton of spare time on my hands again. And so that's when I tried my hand at stand-up comedy in New York City, learned that I was not very good at that, but did learn a few <laughs> things that served me well along the way. And one of those was I carry around a notebook. I do it ever since. And you write down every time something really gets on your nerves or annoys you, you write it down. And that was how you, you know, get your material for your stand-up comedy routines. But more importantly, it's what gave me the material to start my company. I jotted down all the things that annoyed me about the pharma industry. Eventually, that led me to be not an investor in the pharma industry, but to be an actual entrepreneur in the biopharma industry. And so I left in 2014 to start a biotech company called Royvent which I built from the ground up over seven years, served as CEO through this January. And it's a, I'm proud to say a multi-billion dollar enterprise today. It's gotten multiple drugs through phase three that are now a couple of which are approved drugs for patients. And, you know, the one I'm most proud of is probably an FDA approved drug for prostate cancer that got, uh, that got approved in recent years. Fantastic. But that being said, I decided to step aside from my role as CEO in January to work on a different kind of cancer not a biological cancer, but a cultural cancer that I felt was at risk of really invading every American institution as we knew it, starting with corporate America. And in the game that I had seen so many of my peers play was one that I felt that people needed to see with clear eyes, which was that if you're a business, you pretend like you care about something other than profit and power in the modern era, precisely to gain more of each. And to me, that wasn't just a scam. It was a new ruse that was really dividing America to a breaking point. It mixed politics with business in a way that concentrated the power to make political and moral judgments in the hands of a small group of business elites rather than in the hands of the American people at large. And to me, that was a fundamental violation of democracy that may have resembled old world Europe, where a small group of business elites and church elites got together in a room and decided what was good for, for society at large. American democracy was supposed to work on the principle that everyone's voice and vote counted equally in the public square and in the marketplace of ideas around moral and normative questions. And so to me, that was where I began this journey was with a concern that this new model of so-called stakeholder capitalism or the newly woke brand of stakeholder capitalism where these companies also push philosophies, postmodern philosophies centered on identity politics, that that was actually going to pose a threat to American democracy. What I learned is I think the problem oh. runs even deeper than that. And that's something that I'm happy to talk about, but that's what led me to write the book. Okay, well, there's no question that you're gonna to have to talk about that. Well, let me ask what seems like a facile question, but, but I'm sure is not at all. Isn't it at least as much of a threat in the much shorter term, what you're describing, to the, the, to the economic sustainability of these companies themselves from the point of view of shareholders. I understand the power aspect of it, that if you're, you know, in, 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 at the sea level where people are essentially, you know, I, I don't want to use, I'll, I want to I try to stick with polite terms on, on the podcast, but they are um, pleasuring each other and, and you know, the boards and, and, the, and the sea level people are all you know, it's an, it's a revolving door from company to company and the fees and the, you know, and, and the luxury and, and the high compensation, they're not going to be affected by 
the way consumers react in to either the messages they're sending or the images, which I think is very compelling right now that they're sending. Doesn't that so, ultimately work against their interests or the interests of stockholders at least? Yes, yeah, so, so you, that's, a, that's a very popular argument from Milton Friedman back in the 1970s. He too, like me, was against this model of stakeholder capitalism. And the reason why is that he thought politics when it infected business would make businesses less efficient less effective at making products and selling them for profit. That was his principal concern. I think there's a lot of validity to that view. That sounds like that's your concern too. I share a lot of those perspectives. It would my be my concern, concern if my empirical observations didn't contradict it. There's, so, there's something I'm missing and maybe you're gonna explain it now. Well, what, yeah, what I was gonna say is, what I was gonna say is my principal concern is actually the reverse though, is actually the way in which corporate power is invading democracy in reverse. And I think that's actually captures the essence of what's happening today relative to when the same model of capitalism was sort of born back in the 1970s. And to me, the difference today is that our culture has changed enough, an entire generation of millennials and Gen Z and an entire generation of Americans that are so hungry for a cause and hungry for purpose and hungry for identity that many of them are actually demanding that companies spew off social justice efforts or, or offer statements in support of social causes that they also find themselves supporting, that in a certain way for many of these companies, it actually may be the more profitable thing to do, or it may be the, the thing to do that at least aggregates greater political clout and power to be able to deflect regulatory scrutiny or accountability, especially from a Democrat-led government by bowing at the temple of identity politics, by pushing certain social values and using their corporate platform to do it, that could actually be something that helps the business because let's just take an example. If you're Silicon Valley, if you want to censor hate speech or misinformation as the Democratic Party defines it today, well, guess what? That's actually going to give you more favorable regulatory treatment when it comes to their decision to regulate your monopoly power or not. And sure. the grand bargain today is effectively that Silicon Valley agrees to censor or moderate content that certain wings of liberal government don't want to see online. But in return, they get a new implicit expectation that the Democratic Party looks the other way when it comes to leaving their monopoly power intact. So does that help their business? Probably. So, so oh, in a certain sense, sure. it's not that they're betraying their stockholders per se. The real culprit here, the, the real victim, I should say, is American democracy itself, not necessarily the shareholders of, of Twitter or Facebook, who, if you look at their stock price over the last year or after over the last 30 years, seem to be doing outstandingly well. That's not actually the issue. And so to me, I think that's what I kind of put a fine point on in the book is really what the essence of what's going on here isn't necessarily that a firm is being deprived of profitability, but the entire system of capitalism, when it changes its focus from delivering profit to shareholders, the people who are actually hurt by that most sometimes may not even be the shareholders when the culture has changed so much that that becomes a profitable model in its own right. The thing that we're really robbed of is the integrity of our polity, the integrity of American democracy, where the voices of few drown out the voices of many because the few hold the keys to ultimately determine, determining what can and can't be discussed in the marketplace of ideas. That's what I'm actually writing about in the book. I have been noticing this, um, this phenomenon that you're talking about for quite some time. And to the extent, and I never tire of discussing what you're describing in the technology and social media spheres. That, that I get. But I want to ask at the moment a little bit more um, 
nuanced question, which is, let's put the technology slash media sector aside. I mean, I, we often refer, I think, a little bit too, too broadly to technology to include the likes of, you know, Twitter and Facebook. They are technology companies, but they're much, much more than that, as you, as you point out. There are pure technology companies that have nothing at all to do, like the one that, that you founded, obviously, have nothing at all to do with social media. But I'm talking about the old line corporate America, or which, which to, to a large extent is not America anymore. And that's part of the, that's part of the, that's a, that's a complicating factor at the very least. But I understand that Twitter and Facebook are going to do what they do because they're actually right at, they're, they're the ones controlling the hose. But what about the blue chip companies? What about the companies where Americans have been going to work, lunch, pale America? How is it that this works culturally and economically for them and their shareholders? Yeah, so look, I mean, I think that part of it's the same game and then part of it is, is one step further than that in our culture, which I'll talk about. The same game part is, let's just take Coca-Cola, for example. If you're Coca-Cola, you've been criticized by the old left for a very long time about your supply chains, about some of your environmental practices. Well, guess what? If you're Coca-Cola, you would much rather be talking about voting laws in Georgia or teaching your employees how to be less white than you would be talking about the impact of your own products on the nationwide epidemic of diabetes and obesity, including its impact in the black community that they profess to care so much about. So in a certain sense, it is a way of doing the exact same trick, deflecting accountability, including ire from consumers, including anger from their potential consumer base to be able to redirect that to show that they're actually on the right side of history, at least as it pertains to the liberal wing of their consumer base by criticizing a voting law in Georgia. So, so I one, and, it's, and it's the liberal, it's the liberal sector that's been bugging is. them because everyone else is, is just buying the Coke and drinking it. That's right. Now, 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 there's a reason why that ends up being to proving the more profitable model, because I think liberals are more likely to decide not to buy from a company on the basis of disagreeing with their values than conservatives are. So that's part of the reason why companies further bend the knee in that direction. But there's also a, a further cultural phenomenon at work today, and that is unique to the woke progressive movement. It's part of why I call the book Woke Incorporated, which is this. If you disagree with any of the claims of the modern woke movement, that there's systemic racism in the United States, that the black community is inherently disadvantaged relative to the white community, that your race and your gender and your sexual orientation in some ways limit what you can achieve in this country because you're the subject of consistent discrimination. If you disagree with any of those claims in postmodern America, that actually means that you're just a racist and you don't know it. And there is no greater damnation in modern America than to be called a racist. So it's a risk calculus. If you're a CEO, if you're a corporate leader, you have a choice between being tarred with the scarlet R or temporarily bending the knee to this new religion. Everyday Americans, CEOs included, are choosing to bend the knee to that new form of cultural totalitarianism. And so I think that that's something that, again, tips the cost-benefit analysis to say that risk-adjusted if there's a risk that somebody could be called a racist by not by failing to say the right things after George Floyd is killed or whatever may have happened in a given year, that's not a risk that they're willing to take because that could have real downside consequences. Whereas here, you might piss off some conservatives along the way. They're still going to come back and buy your products. They're not as prone to, to you know, in tying up their morality with their commercialism quite as much as the liberal left. So the cost benefit calculus tilts in favor of just saying, all right, 
A, I get to deflect accountability. I get to deflect the ire of the left. Conservatives, yeah, they may not like what I'm doing today, but they're generally friendly to big business and believe in private enterprise and believe in profitability. This is the happy medium that ultimately optimizes across those constraints to actually do the thing that might very well for many of these firms. I'm not saying it's always true, but in certain cases may actually be the thing that maximizes profitability. Sometimes you have a, a CEO who's going rogue and says that, you know what, I'm going to do what I feel like doing because I'm in charge and to hell with the shareholders. Well, look, that's a standard fiduciary violation. I talk a lot about that in the book too. But I think that that's an older school Milton Friedman style argument that misses the essence of a lot of what's happening today, which is actually corporate behavior changing to track the culture in a way that actually theoretically benefits the profit and power of the corporation. But the real victim isn't the shareholder of that company. The shareholder might even be a beneficiary. The real victim, the shareholder might even be a perpetrator in certain cases like BlackRock or other investment firms that are pushing this woke ideology through the companies that they invest in. The real victims end up being America's citizenry and our civic body and America's democracy at large. That's, I think, the unique thesis of this book that turns on its head the usual defense of uh, the usual critique of stakeholder capitalism and defense of shareholder capitalism. I'm defending shareholder capitalism not to maximize wealth for shareholders principally, but actually to right. maximize the integrity of the American polity and American democracy itself. And, you know, Vivek, I, you know, we're a young guy. You probably don't remember much of the, uh, of the uh, Pat Buchanan era, the Reagan era, but decades ago, Pat Buchanan, who was tarred, I think, basically unjustly with the with the um, with the uh, brush of anti-Semitism and, and sort of written out of the movement, and 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 that in those days, anti-Semitism did what the claim of of, of racism does today. It, it's no longer quite the same. Uh, to, to just delegitimize a person and, and his thinking. But what Pat Buchanan said and that no one else on the right wanted to hear in the 80s and 90s was, the threat isn't as much from big government as it is from the multinational corporation that does not have constitutional restraints applied to it. And what we have seen, and this is something you've written about a lot, is essentially the outsourcing of unconstitutional uh, conduct, and, and, and in fact, what, what otherwise might often be illegal conduct, if it were done by the government to corporate America. And that that is the, the most chilling thing that's going on right now. And it's the hardest thing to get people, I think, to understand. Hands down, right. So that is a big part of what this book is about, is it lays out crony capitalism 2.0, which is actually the old school crony capitalism in reverse. According to old school crony capitalism, businesses capture the government through campaign contributions, through placing their alumni in new administrations to be able to gain competitive favors relative to their competition. Well, guess what? Crony capitalism 2.0 isn't just about businesses bribing the government. It is about government bribing the businesses in return to dispatch private companies to do through the back door what government cannot do directly through the front door under the constitution. We talked about big tech censorship. I think that's happening all the time where the government and party in power wants to see certain content removed from the internet. There's a pesky constraint called the first amendment to the constitution of the United States, which applies to state actors. So they dispatch private companies to do what they can't do directly. Now, what do the private companies get out of it? Well, first of all, they're threatening the private companies. They're offering inducements to the private companies. They offer an immunity shield in the form of Section 230 to these private companies to do exactly that. One of the cases I make in the book is that if it is state action in disguise, then the Constitution still applies. And there's actually really strong Supreme Court doctrines and case law 
supporting that as well. But it's not just in big tech. It happens rampantly across corporate America. You take a look at John Kerry's, John Kerry, who's President Biden's climate czar. Well, they wanted to pass the Green New Deal. They couldn't. Congress didn't want to pass it. Now they're able to achieve many of those same goals by just threatening big banks or coordinating with big banks to stop lending to projects that they don't want to see proceed. And now every bank, it's part of the institutional banking cartel on Wall Street, won't lend to certain projects. John Kerry is actually boasting about that. He said he used his relationship with banking CEOs to get them to sign on to what he calls the climate pledge. Well, banks are not charitable institutions. I think the questions Americans ought to be asking is what they are getting in return for abiding by the dictates of the government. Same thing in the Obama era. Now we're seeing it again happen in the Biden administration, which is that they wanted to fund certain nonprofits that Congress refused to fund as part of the constitutionally ordained budgeting process. So what does the Obama administration do? They actually use the DOJ, the Department of Justice, that settled with big banks that owed tens of billions of dollars on the back of the 08 financial crisis. They use those settlement dollars to go to the banks and say, actually, if you donate a dollar to one of these nonprofits that we wanted to fund, La Raza, the National Urban League, and so forth, we will give you more than a one-for-one -one offset. We'll give you $2 off or $3 off what you owe the US Treasury. Oh, and by the way, your press release looks a lot better as a bank to say you donated to a nonprofit than to pay the US Treasury, and you get a tax deduction too. And guess what? You pay less money. Banks, being fond of money, love that arrangement. But for the Obama administration, it was a way to evade the constitutionally ordained budgeting process to use the Department of Justice to send money directly to these nonprofits from the banks that should have paid the DOJ instead. The American public is left holding the bag and nobody even knows about it. This is actually a little discussed phenomenon that I lay out in the book. Your blood would be boiling by the time you read the end of it. I, certainly mine was as I learned about it. But my thesis here is that the first step to a solution is actually shining sunlight on the problem and seeing with clear eyes exactly what's going on. And usually when the American people can see for themselves what's going on, they're able to ultimately get to a better place. I lay out the beginning of some of those legal solutions in the book too, but that's a big part of what this crony capitalism 2.0 is all about. It is about creating this new hybrid of big government and big business that is far more powerful than either one alone. And I say that even in prior decades, it may have been that big government was the biggest threat to liberty and prosperity. Maybe that was the case when Reagan took office. That's probably what made him a hero by cutting and slashing regulations and reducing the size of big government. That's great. Love him for it. That's not the biggest threat today. It's only half the story. It is this new hybrid of big government and big business that I think is a new monster, a new Leviathan that is far more powerful than what Thomas Hobbes envisioned 400 years ago. It is far more powerful than what our founding fathers ever imagined 250 years ago. And I would say that both George Orwell and George Washington are rolling in their graves as they watch business in the name of private enterprise actually restrain liberty when in fact they're doing the cloaked bidding of big government instead. 100%. And I, I think it's also worth observing that in addition to capturing the state and capturing corporate America, this phenomenon necessarily because of the way that the way it inter, inter it, it, it the, because of the interaction and the transact you know the high level of trans of transactions between those sectors and the professional and academic worlds is also very chilling and very and very problematic academia the you can't even call them the press anymore the corporate press the legal profession, 
and the medical profession have all been so these these have traditionally been viewed as reliable professional objective truth oriented endeavors and now they are all part of the system absolutely i mean this is a staggering fact if you just think about this for a second if anyone who's listening who's a doctor ought to think about the hippocratic oath and the profession's goal to invite and treat every human being no matter who they are the american medical association the ama endorsed joe biden for president of the united states i don't care if they endorse trump i don't care if they endorse biden the ama should not be in the business of making a presidential endorsement because you wonder about why half the public doesn't trust science or doesn't trust medicine or doesn't trust what their experts tell them. That's a good reason why, is watching politics infect one sphere after another, our private sector, our nonprofits, and the, the IRS American has nothing to, nothing to say about that. IRS has nothing to say about that. By the way, this that's not staggering to me. That is staggering. That's a staggering, there's not a Hippocratic oath. It is a hypocritical oath now in medicine. But the thing that bothers me about it is that, as, just speaking as an American, we live in a divided polity. Our politics are bitterly divided. But in order to be one society at the end of it, we require an apolitical private sector to be able to bring us together in the places we eat, in the places we watch sports, in the places we listen to music, in the places we work. And when those spaces go political too, then we lose the possibility of solidarity itself. And I don't care whether it's coming from the left or from the right. Today, it is decidedly coming from the left. But the, the, the real loser here is American solidarity, because if we lose those apolitical spheres that would otherwise bind us together, if those themselves become politicized, we really may be on the first of the beginning of a step towards a new civil war. If you look at the old civil war, that's actually how it began, is you had one society that was divided, not just politically and culturally, but also became economically divided into two economies. And I worry that even the conservative response to watching every one of these corporations go woke is to say that, okay, we're going to make a right-wing version of coffee, as you now have in Black Rifle Coffee. We're going to make a white right-wing version of pillows, as you have in the case of my pillow. Once we have a right-wing version of baseball as an alternative to the MLB, I think that could be the first sign that puts us to the beginning of the end, the unraveling of the American experiment as we know it. And that's what I want to prevent. That's why I wrote this book. I think that's shining a light on the problem when people actually wake up and realize that, wait a minute, even if I'm on the left and a company's spouting out social values that I happen to like today, that may not be good for the integrity of our country. And by the way, if companies become vehicles for advancing liberal social agendas today, they can become vehicles for advancing anyone's social agenda tomorrow. No one has mastered that art better than the CCP. The Chinese Communist Party is now using companies as vectors to advance their values globally. One of the things that I lay out in the book as well, it's probably the first book that lay out, lays out the geopolitical implications of wokeness and woke capitalism. But to me, I think that once even progressives, even good-hearted liberals wake up to that reality, we'll realize that this is the wrong way forward, that forcing capitalism and democracy to share the same bed, that's not how we solve our social problems. It's actually to effectuate, I think, a clean divorce between the two. And what I think of is our system of private enterprise works great when it stands on its own. Our system of democracy works great when it stands on its own. But when we mix the two, we're left with neither in the end. So, so Vivek, tell me then in Woke Inc., what sort of solutions do you throw out there? Yeah, so look, there's a few there's a few buckets of solutions. Some of them are policy solutions. Some of them are legal solutions that could be pursued in court under existing law. 
the most important solutions are actually cultural solutions that are outside of politics. But let me, let me start with the symptomatic therapies, if you will. Those are some of the policy solutions. I think that we live in a moment of fear, fear of people being able to express themselves, fear of losing their job for saying the wrong thing, fear of their kids getting a bad grade in school for, for them saying the wrong thing, even as a parent. Well, you know what I think? I think that if you can't discriminate against somebody on account of their race or their gender or their sexual orientation or their national origin or their religion, then you should not be able to discriminate against them on account of their political beliefs either. I argue that we should add political expression and political beliefs to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Title VII, right there next to race, gender, sexual orientation, and religion and national origin. Because I say that if you can't fire somebody or deplatform somebody because they're black or gay or Muslim or white or Christian or Jewish or whatever, you should not be able to fire or deplatform them just because they're an outspoken conservative. And I do not think this is an academic issue. Or it communist. is happening directly or indirectly every day in this country. If it can happen to the 45th president of the United States, whatever you think of him, it can happen to anybody. So, so that's a really simple kind of solution that says you can't have it both ways. Either we get rid of protected classes altogether and we trust the market to police all forms of discrimination, which I think is a reasonable discussion we ought to have. But so long as no one's willing to do that, we ought to apply those standards evenly to address what I think is the most rampant form of discrimination today. It is not racial discrimination, in my opinion. It is political discrimination and discrimination based on political viewpoint. That's one example. I also talk about amending Section 230 to be able to say that, again, you can't have it both ways if you're a big tech company. Either you get this special form of federal governmental immunity and you're bound by the same standards as the federal government, including the First Amendment, or you get to operate as a private company, you're free to decide what doesn't doesn't show up on your website, but then you don't get this special form of immunity, but you cannot have it both ways. So in many ways, a lot of my policy solutions in the book come down to that simple principle. You can't have your cake and eat it too by getting special government protection in certain cases, but claiming that you don't that, that you get to operate with, with all of the freedoms of a private company when in fact, you're not really operating as a truly private company. That's where a lot of my policy solutions come in. The legal solutions, which I won't go through here at length, but are argued under Supreme Court and other relevant federal precedents to actually make the case, even without a change in law, that when somebody is the subject of political discrimination because they're forced to bend the knee to woke ideology as perpetuated by their employer, I argue that wokeness meets the test for religion, the Supreme Court's test for religion. That's actually a violation of the Civil Rights Acts on account of religion. Today, where the existing doctrines say an employer can't force an employee to bow down to their religion, it doesn't matter if that's a cross or it doesn't matter if that's the woke ideology, if wokeness meets the Supreme Court's test for religion, as I believe it does in spades, then employees can't be forced to bow at the altar of a DEI training session when, in fact, they're exposed and forced to, to take on religious ideas. As a you know, we actually have a, a statute like that in New Jersey. And as far as I know, it hasn't been used yet because people are afraid. People are, yeah. are they don't trust the courts for sure to, you know, to, to enforce things fairly. I mean, there's, there's been such a disintegration of trust in these, you know, apolitical institutions, as you, as you describe them. Um, but also they don't, they might, they don't want to find out that they're unemployable in the future because they're That's the right. troublemakers who, who raise the issue. And, and you're totally right about that. There's this new culture of fear that has pervaded our country. There was actually a recent survey conducted by the Cato Institute earlier this year that included Republicans, Democrats, and independents that found 60%, it was like over 60% of Americans say they're afraid of expressing their true political beliefs because of the current political environment. And, oh, and to absolutely. me, that is not America. That is not the country that my parents came halfway across the world to join. I don't think it's the country that you and I want to see America become. And I think the right answer has to be this new cultural revival, which says that 
This isn't a country that forces you to choose between being able to express your true beliefs and putting food on the dinner table. Between the First Amendment and the American dream, you get to have both. This is the quintessential country on earth where you get to enjoy both of those things at once. And that's what I actually think we need in this country is a cultural revival that reinvigorates and remembers and revives those basic ideals that bind us together across our diversity. The well, American dream. What does that dream, mean? How does that, that happen? How does that happen, though? I mean, what, yeah, I think it happens through civic education in our schools. So I'm a big okay. fan of weaving civic education and even mandatory civic service into primary education to revive our shared Americanism to say that, you know what, I think part of the problem with my generation is you don't value something that you inherit. You only value something that you have a stake in building. And if we don't all have an equal stake in that, then I think that we're left with a country that celebrates our diversity and our differences as we've obsessed over for the last decade all the while forgetting the few ideals that bind us together across that diversity. And I'm personally fine. I'm a capitalist. I'm a lover of the system of capitalism. I am fine with a system where there is disparate and unequal outcomes as long as everyone starts with the same equal opportunity to say that one person might be more successful in realizing their dreams than another. Great. That's what the American system is all about. I'm okay with that. But I think that our civic duties and our civic responsibilities ought to be shared equally. And that as citizens, we're all equal, even if as consumers or as capitalists, we may each realize our respective dreams in different ways. And I think that's what we need to restore culturally. I think it starts with the next generation, beginning with civic education. I talk about a lot of those proposals in the book as well. So Vivek, in the last couple of minutes, you mentioned early on about your Walking away from from the business world, uh, you know, on an active uh, you know level, and throwing yourself at this book project. What are you doing other than talking at this point? Yeah, it's well, a, right a, now I I rolled out this book three weeks ago, so my my commitment wow. to. I didn't realize why I was that hot here. It's that hot, yeah. It launched at number two on the uh, on the New York Times bestseller list, and I didn't. I never expected that to happen in its first week. I didn't but, even know the New York Times would permit you on its bestseller list. You know, I, they, they say impressive. that they say that if you clear the bar by enough of a margin, you know, they, they you have to get to the too big to ignore category. So I was grateful, you know, for the reception the books received. By the way, on the right and on the left, I think I want to I want to thank a lot of thoughtful classical liberals who have embraced this book and in a way that has at least forced a conversation that I think we need to be having both on the right and on the left. Can you throw some but, names out? I, okay. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that, uh, you know, I, one, of the, one of the other podcasts that I enjoyed going on was, was the, the realignment. I went with, with Sagar and Jetty and his crew, and I thought, I thought they, were, they were really, you know, gracious in the way that they reached out. MSNBC had me on. I wanted, you know, Morning Joe was gracious in reaching out and having me on the show. I can That's tell you when I watched the book, I wasn't banking on that. What's yeah. that? That's very encouraging. Yeah, I think it's very encouraging because I think that, what I've found is even some of the, some of the hosts on some of the liberal podcasts and left-leaning podcasts and TV shows, one of them actually came up to me after and he was, he was joking, but, but he was making a point. He, he sort of whispered, he says, I just want to tell you, we agree with you, but we can't just say it out loud because there's also this rift on the left where there's an old left that cared yes. about economic injustice and economic inequality. I would love to go back to an American politic where the left went back to worrying about economic injustice economic opportunity, access to economic equality of opportunity, rather than the new racialized agenda that says that actually the real sources of disempowerment are race and gender and sexual orientation. I would love restoring an old left that went back to arguing with the right about redistribution and questions of economic distribution. 
wherever you land on those questions, I think America is strictly better off if that's what we're talking about, rather than inherited racial and gender-based disempowerment, which is what the woke progressive wing of the Democratic Party wants to do. So this is a book that I think is a forcing function for both the left and the right to be able to, I think, elevate the quality of our political debate to a place that we're at least talking about the things that we should be talking about and talking openly about them without fear of retribution. So anyway, to answer your question, in recent weeks, I stepped down as CEO in January. My focus was actually to not make a personal plan for myself. Because once you have a personal plan, the things that you say are in some ways beholden to that plan, be it self-interested in starting a business, be it a political career, the things that you say are filtered as a consequence of what you personally want to do with it. You know what I did? I committed to myself that I'm not deciding what I'm doing next. So six months from now, I have no idea what I'll be doing. And I think that's been something that I've actually, A, personally enjoyed, but B, have taken advantage of to really speak in an uninhibited way about sharing a message that I think needs to be shared and talking about personal experiences that I've had in elite America over the last 15 years that I think the rest of America needs to hear about with clear eyes. And then I'll figure out what's next for me after that. We do, Vivek, and you're doing a great job of it. I really appreciate your finding time to come onto the show. I'm glad you're so busy. That can only be good for America. Uh, I hope we have Thank the you. chance to talk again. I'm looking forward to reading the book. And uh, you're hitting the nail right in the head. Keep up the good work. Thanks again. Thank you so much. Appreciate you having me. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.